Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a mango daiquiri. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking a margarita, and in this week's episode, we're talking about the infamous crimes of serial killer Dorothea Puente. Dorothea Puente was born Dorothea Helen Gray on January 9th, 1929 in Redlands, California. She was the sixth of seven children. Though there are conflicting accounts, it's generally believed that her childhood was unstable to say the least. Both of her parents were alcoholics and abusive. Her father would allegedly hold a gun to his head and threaten to kill himself in front of his children. In 1937, her father died and one year later her mother died in a motorcycle accident. Following their deaths, she and her siblings were sent to an orphanage where she was sexually abused. The children were eventually taken in by family members in Fresno, California. In 1946, at the age of 16, Dorothea moved to Olympia, Washington and became a sex worker. While in Olympia, she married 22-year-old World War II veteran Fred McFall. On their marriage certificate, Dorothea was listed as 30-year-old Cheryl Ale A. Raciel. The couple had two daughters, one Dorothea sent to live with other family members and the other who was placed for adoption. In 1948, Dorothea was arrested in Riverside, California for passing forged checks and was sentenced to four months in jail. That same year, McFall filed for divorce. After her release, Dorothea left Riverside despite the fact that she was supposed to stay in the area while she was on probation. In 1952, she married Axel Johansson in San Francisco. Their marriage was turbulent, and when Johansson was away, Dorothea would invite men into their home and gamble. In 1960, she was arrested for owning and operating a brothel under the disguise of a bookkeeping firm in Sacramento, California, and was sentenced to 90 days in the Sacramento County Jail. In order to avoid probation officers, Dorothea took on new names and identities. In 1961, Johansson had Dorothea briefly committed to DeWitt State Hospital after a binge of drinking, lying, criminal behavior, and suicide attempts. While there, doctors diagnosed her as a pathological liar with an unstable personality. They eventually divorced in 1966, and Dorothea went by the name Sharon Johansson, hiding her criminal behavior by portraying herself as a kind Christian woman. She established her reputation as a caregiver, providing young women with a sanctuary from abuse and poverty without charge. She found work as a nurse's aide, caring for people who were elderly and disabled in private homes. In 1968, Dorothea married Roberto Puente in Mexico City. Roberto was 19 years her junior and was alleged to frequently Roberto was 19 years her junior and it was alleged that he would frequently cheat on Dorothea. Just 16 months after their wedding, the couple separated and Dorothea cited domestic abuse as the primary reason. Roberto fled to Mexico and the divorce wasn't finalized until 1973. Following her divorce, Dorothea began running an unlicensed boarding house located at 21st and F Streets in Sacramento. She took in homeless individuals and people struggling with alcoholism and mental health issues. She hosted AA meetings and local social workers knew her as a reliable placement for their clients. Dorothea's appearance also began to change dramatically. She went from wearing sexy, bold clothing to more modest clothing. She also stopped dyeing her hair, started wearing large, thick glasses, and told new acquaintances she was a devoted Christian who loved serving her community. 
Around 1976, Dorothea married Pedro Angel Montavo, but their marriage lasted only two weeks before Montavo left. Two years later, Dorothea had another run-in with the law where she was convicted of illegally cashing 34 state and federal checks that belonged to her tenant. She was given five years probation, ordered to pay $4,000 in restitution, and shut down her boarding house. One of Dorothea's first boarders was her business partner, 61-year-old Ruth Monroe, who moved into the house in the spring of 1982. Monroe soon died from an overdose of codeine and acetaminophen and left Dorothea an inheritance that included $6,000 in cash. Dorothea claimed Ruth was depressed and she had intentionally overdosed. The coroner ruled the death a suicide despite her children's pleas that Dorothea had poisoned their mother in order to take money from the family. Just a few weeks after Ruth's death, 74-year-old Malcolm McKenzie accused Dorothea of drugging and robbing him. Dorothea was sentenced to five years in prison for her crimes and was released two years early for good behavior. Before her release, a state psychologist diagnosed her as a schizophrenic and said, quote, this woman is a disturbed woman who does not appear to have remorse or regret for what she has done. She is to be considered dangerous and her living environment and or employment should be closely monitored, end quote. During her time in prison, Dorothea became pen pals with 77-year-old Everson Gilmouth of Oregon. After her release, Dorothea finally met Everson in person. Their relationship developed quickly and the couple were soon making wedding plans. In November 1985, she hired Ismael Flores to install wood paneling in her apartment. To pay him, Dorothea gave him a red Ford pickup, which she stated belonged to her boyfriend in Los Angeles, who no longer needed it. She also asked Flores to build a 6 by 3 by 2 foot box to store quote-unquote books and other items. She then asked Flores to transport the sealed box to a storage deposit. While on a garden highway, Dorothea asked Flores to dump the box of quote-unquote junk on the riverbank at an unofficial household junk dumping site. On January 1st, 1986, a fisherman spotted the suspicious-looking coffin-like box near the river and called police. Investigators opened the box and found the badly decomposed and unidentifiable body of an elderly man inside. Dorothea continued to collect Gilmouth's pension and wrote letters to his family explaining that the reason he had not contacted them was because he was very ill. She continued to maintain a boarding house, taking in 40 new tenants. Despite her criminal record, Dorothea convinced social workers to place elderly, disabled, and patients struggling with addiction into her home as tenants. One even said she provided the best care the system could afford. Again, Dorothea took in individuals considered quote-unquote difficult cases. For the next six years, Dorothea was checked on by probation officers who did not realize she was running a business and remained an esteemed member of her community with respect in political circles for her charity work. That all changed when 51-year-old Alvaro Montoya was reported missing by his social worker Judy Moyes, who had placed him in Dorothea's care. Montoya was described as a gentle man who suffered from untreated psychosis, and Moyes hadn't spoken to him in several weeks. 
Dorothea told Moyes that Montoya had moved out and was evasive when further questioned. This made Moyes suspicious, and she eventually contacted the police. An officer dispatched to the house that morning interviewed Dorothea and one of her attendants, John Sharp. In her presence, Sharp corroborated her story about Montoya. But before the cop left, Sharp managed to slip a handwritten note that read, quote unquote, she's making me lie for her. On November 11, 1988, police detective John Cabrera went to Dorothea's home. Dorothea said she didn't know anything about Montoya's whereabouts, but gave permission for the officers to search the property. Cabrera and his colleagues didn't notice anything unusual inside the home, but they saw that the garden had been dug up. With permission from Dorothea, Cabrera began digging into the disturbed piece of land. It didn't take long before he discovered the decomposing body of 78-year-old tenant Leona Carpenter. The following day, a team of forensic anthropologists began excavating the garden. In total, they found seven bodies wrapped in sheets or tarps. One body had been there so long that growing roots of a peach tree had curled around it. Authorities let Dorothea leave the scene and buy a coffee as there was not enough evidence to detain her. Dorothea used this time to flee to Los Angeles. There, she met an elderly man at a bar who recognized her from news reports. She was quickly arrested and returned to Sacramento. Dorothea was charged with the murders of Everson Gilmuth, whose body was finally identified in 1988, Ruth Monroe, Leona Carpenter, Alvaro Montoya, 64-year-old Dorothy Miller, 55-year-old Benjamin Fink, 62-year-old James Gallup, 64-year-old Vera Faye Martin, and 78-year-old Betty Palmer. Distressed neighbors told the local news that they had complained for months about the smell emanating from the neatly kept backyard, but Dorothea always claimed the smell was just fertilizer. Though some noticed Dorothea's tenants disappearing, she explained it away to social workers by saying they must have moved along since some led quote-unquote transient lives. Prior to Dorothea's trial, which started in October 1992, she was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Prosecutor John O'Mara argued that Dorothea had laced her tenant's food with prescription pills, suffocated them, and collected her tenant's benefits. It's estimated she took in about $87,000 in stolen benefits. All the tenants had died from a cocktail of drugs, including the sedative dialmine, which she obtained dozens of prescriptions for, claiming it was to help boarders sleep. It was difficult to determine, though, whether she had poisoned the tenants or if they had taken the fatal overdoses themselves. The jury deliberated for 24 days, the longest deliberation for a murder trial in state history at that time, and eventually found Dorothea guilty of three murders. After several days of deliberations, the jury deadlocked 7-5. Judge Michael J. Verga declared a mistrial when the jury said further deliberations would not change their minds. Dorothea was sentenced to life without parole sentences for two first-degree murder convictions and a concurrent 15 years to life sentence for a second-degree murder conviction. For the remainder of her life, she maintained her innocence. 
insisting that all her boarders had died of quote-unquote natural causes. In the years following her incarceration, other families have come forward to claim their lost loved ones as the victims of Dorothea, with six other unconfirmed murders being attributed to a warped caregiver in the late 1970s and early 1980s. In 2004, Dorothea's pen pal, Shane Bugsby, published a book titled Cooking with a Serial Killer, which included 50 recipes that Dorothea had shared with Bugsby. Dorothea died in March of 2011 at the age of 82. Tell, what are your thoughts on Dorothea Puente and her crimes? She is one of the worst monsters that we have ever talked about on this podcast, in my opinion. And we have talked about a lot of messed up people. She took advantage of those in the most vulnerable of states in order to financially gain from them. She could have done a lot of good work had she not been so greedy and immoral. While I do understand that she had some psychological afflictions and other things that had worked against her in her life, nothing excuses the taking of all these lives and the torment that she put their families through by not being honest. The fact that she went to her grave maintaining her innocence is no surprise to me. She doesn't come across as someone who would be able to accept accountability for the crimes that she's committed. I think that it's interesting that she had a pen pal that decided that a cookbook should be created based on conversations that she had shared with them. I find it in that murder memorabilia. I think it's in that weird category of murder memorabilia that we've talked about on previous episodes and agreed that it's one of the more disturbing parts of the true crime community and people's fascination with killers. And I think that this pen pal was able to capitalize on that. I definitely think that the social worker, Judy, she definitely is just heroic in her bravery of confronting the situation, and just in her passion for her clients as well. As we can see with the number of murders that Dorothea committed, there was a lot of other social workers who let their clients fall through the cracks and didn't follow up property to make sure that their clients were safe. And so my hat's off to uh, Judy for not letting her client be one of those stories and ultimately bringing it into the murders that Dorothea was committing. What are your thoughts? She definitely is a very particular kind of evil to pretend like you're this charitable person doing so much to help the community and it's all a guise for you to get money is despicable. And uh, like you said, Del, to take advantage of people that are really disenfranchised, that need support and have nowhere else to go is disgusting and really upsetting. And yes, hats off to Judy Moyes and to John Sharp, the boarder that was able to stand up and say, she's making me lie. Because if that didn't happen, who knows if the police really would have gone back to check her out. She is definitely like a cold, calculating person to... It's really sad seeing so many people suffer in silence almost because 
she knew she could get away with this because they were people, like she said, they led transient lifestyles. They were people that didn't have family or no one to really look after them and people that society would just forget. As for the cookbook, I'm with you. It is a very distasteful part of murder memorabilia, murderbilia. I don't know if he shared the profits. Maybe it maybe it would be not as bad if he shared the profits with like a victim's rights group or some kind of fund for the victim's families. I don't think that's the case, but I don't know for sure. But I wanted to include that because I thought it was a bizarre detail. Also, how wild and upsetting is it that she regularly had probation officers coming in and no one noticed that she was running a boarding house? I mean, I don't know if they would have looked in like every single room and I'm sure not every boarder would have been there every single time they came to visit. So she could easily just say like, oh, this person's just like my cousin staying with me for a little bit. And I feel like so many times we hear that, like this is unrelated, but JC Dugard, she was held captive by her kidnapper and abuser for years. And they had probation officers visit the home regularly and nobody ever noticed anything. And I believe that was also in the state of California, which I do think is like very notorious for not having good like probation and like human services for its citizens. So that's a story for another day in more detail. And I'm sure there are other cases we can look into relating to that. But yeah, what an upsetting story. Like we said, many of Dorothea's boarders were people who lived at the quote-unquote margins of society, which helped her get away with her crimes. A majority of her victims were over the age of 60, and many were developmentally disabled or suffered from mental illness, making it difficult for them to advocate for themselves. Given Alvaro Montoya's history as someone that was transient, his disappearance would have escaped notice without the suspicion of his social worker. One Sacramento social worker wept as she talked to the examiner, a local uh, newspaper, I believe. And she said, quote, I've done placement with homeless people, helped them get their money and stabilize their lives. Now I wonder if they would have been better off if they'd stayed homeless, end quote. One social worker began to suspect Dorothea of more nefarious behavior after learning that two elderly women in her care had suffered recurring spells of illness that baffled doctors. Tests revealed high levels of unprescribed drugs in their systems, and the social worker urged fellow counselors to steer clear of Dorothea, but most disregarded the warning since there was a lack of housing options for those suffering from addiction and the mentally ill. Even after her release from prison in 1985, social workers and homeless advocates, ignoring or unaware that she was an ex-con running a boarding home without a license, sent their clients to her. So let's look into a little bit of why older adults in particular are vulnerable. The elderly population can be more vulnerable to victimization due to their potentially impaired physical and mental health, social isolation, and socioeconomic status. Older adults may be less likely to recover from their victimization and are often sought out because of their age and decreased likelihood of reporting. Studies have shown that crimes against older adults are highly underestimated as people with degenerative diseases or cognitive disabilities, including dementia, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's, or are living in institutional settings such as nursing homes are not often included in surveys. Additionally, while studies demonstrate that older adults are most commonly maltreated by family members or acquaintances, roughly half of violent victimizations are perpetrated by strangers. 
According to the World Health Organization, around one in six people 60 years and older experienced some form of abuse in community settings during the past year. Rates of abuse of older people are high in institutions such as nursing homes and long-term care facilities, with two and three staff reporting that they have committed abuse in the past year. Individual level characteristics, which increase the risk of becoming a victim of abuse, include functional dependence or disability, poor physical health, cognitive impairment, poor mental health, and low income. Individual level characteristics which increase the risk of becoming a perpetrator of abuse include mental illness, substance abuse, and dependency, often financial, of the abuser on the victim. Likely targets are older adults who have no family or friends nearby and people with disabilities, memory problems, or dementia. Older women are also more likely to be abused than men. Abuse can happen to any older adult, but often affects those who depend on others for help with activities of everyday life, including bathing, dressing, and taking medication. People with disabilities are also at great risk of victimization. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the rate of violent victimization against persons with disabilities was almost four times the rate for persons without disabilities. Persons with cognitive disabilities had the highest rate of violent victimization among the disability types measured. Disparities are even higher for disabled women, particularly when it comes to domestic and intimate partner violence. Data does not include people who are institutionalized, so the numbers are likely higher. One 1994 study from the Behavioral Interventions Journal found that about 82% of all cases of abuse and neglect of adults with developmental disabilities were carried out in institutions or group homes and that people who, quote, were unlikely or unable to report or resist the abuse were the most common victims, end quote. Del, what are your thoughts on these statistics? I think that they are shocking, but not surprising, unfortunately. When it comes to being a victim of a crime, having some sort of major power imbalance between the victim and the perpetrator often increases the likelihood of it happening. And like we stated, increases the severity of it. I think that the fact that people are being hired and those same people are willing to abuse the people that they have been hired to help is disgusting. And I find them, just like Dorothea, to be some of the most disgusting people that we have within our society. I think that if you are someone that is willing to abuse someone who has any sort of disability or is elderly, you belong underneath the jail in all cases. There is no defense to it. I know we talk a lot about, well, defenses and all this other stuff. There is no defense to it. And the fact that perpetrators may have other things going on is not a justification for their actions. And for me, serves no level of mitigation for their actions. Yeah. When thinking about the scum, I think of people that victimize the elderly and the disabled. What about you? 
I'm glad you have, like, I can feel the passion in your voice because so many times, like we keep saying in this episode, that needs of elderly people and people with disabilities really are not at the forefront of most people's minds. So in so many ways, we just kind of like write them off from society. And I think we saw that a lot with COVID. Like, oh yeah, like of course the people that are going to die are elderly people. Like that's fine. They're going to die anyway. And that's a really upsetting an unhealthy way of thinking to just totally be devoid of empathy, sympathy, care for groups of people. I agree. It's disgusting to see people take advantage of people in need that way. And honestly, like I agree about the numbers are shocking, but not surprising. I feel like if you walk into any elderly residential care facility it would be hard to probably not find abuse. I don't know. It Like you're saying, it it's a very difficult job. It's not for everyone. It's a high-stress job, but that is no means a defense for hurting, taking advantage of people in your care for any reason. It's unacceptable. And just to know like how widespread it is, I don't know like how we can't just be defeated by it. But how do we overcome this? It's like a whole societal mindset that we have to shift. So hopefully we can do it as a society. I think we're I think COVID did make people talk about it a little more. But I don't know. I just I hope we don't see more Dorothea's in the future. Whether there are people, you know, private like her or people in care facilities. I definitely agree with you. And I think that when you were saying that the high stress job, I agree with you. And my thinking has always been, you know, primarily from the onset, whether a job is for you. And if a job is not for you, find another one. A lot of times the people that work within these facilities are nurses or CNAs, people with those type of certifications. There are other paths for you to take where you will still be able to use your certification. And it's always strange to me that instead of doing that, they carry on with their crimes and they carry on with their abuse. I think that it takes a special person to be able to deal with the difficulties that come with it. But like I said, it's always strange to me that you just don't find another job if it's too stressful for you and you feel like you are resorting to abuse and neglect. I think that a lot of times the focus is on abuse, people actively doing something. I think we need to talk more about neglect and how the absence of care can also have a detrimental effect on the lives of those that are elderly and have any type of disability. Just like Dorothea's crimes had a real impact on culture, especially the culture and people in Sacramento, her house has also had a big impact on the city of Sacramento as well. Dorothea's home at 2100 F Street in Sacramento has been called quote, the most notorious house in Sacramento, end quote. Following the murders, the house became somewhat of a tourist attraction with onlookers flocking to it, and it was nicknamed the Death House. Many wanted the home demolished, but since it is considered historical, it cannot be torn down. The current owners, Tom Williams and Barbara Holmes, moved in in 2010 and have a sense of humor towards the house, and they think the house got a quote-unquote bum rap. 
they bought the home because it met their needs and they found it charming. They had no idea about the background on the home when they first visited it. When their realtor looked into the house, he noticed that a notorious history notification was attached to its file. The community was shocked that the home was purchased and no one could understand why someone would want to buy it. Tom and Barbara were interviewed by local news and Barbara told reporters that she thought they could overcome the stigma of the home. They've gone on to decorate the home with plaques that read, quote, it was that awful, awful woman that did it. Don't blame me, end quote, and quote unquote, I'm innocent. <laughs> they also have a mannequin dressed as Dorothea outside. Tom has said there's never a day that goes by without someone taking a photo of the house. At one point, Tom removed the decorations and so many people asked where they were that he had to put them back outside. In 2013, the home was part of an historic houses tour and Tom and Barbara let visitors into their home with hopes of quote-unquote demystifying it. Several thousand people visited and feedback was generally positive. They also invited Detective Cabrera to visit, and they've since become friends. Following the tours, Tom created a sign that reads, quote, it's not that house anymore, end quote. In 2020, the house, along with Barbara and Tom, appear on the show Murder House Flip, a home renovation show in which homes that infamous murders have taken place are revitalized and reclaimed for the owners. Both Tom and Barbara feel that they've taken the darkness away from the house and that they use humor to heal. Del, what are your thoughts on, I guess, this idea of like reclaiming a home and helping the community heal? And would you ever buy a house where someone was murdered? I understand the thoughts behind it. You brought this house, you fell in love with it, but then you find out that it has this dark history, but you've already fallen in love with the house and so you complete the purchase. I do not understand all the comedy that Tom and Barbara put into this. Like the having the mannequin of Dorothea outside, to me, that crosses a line. To me, that is disrespectful to the memory of the victims. It's one thing for you to want to ignore the history of the house because you love it. It's an entirely different thing for you to almost embrace it in a way. I think that the show Murder House Flip is one of the wildest concepts I've ever heard of. Like, just why? Why would you have a show like that? It just doesn't make any sense to me. And to the question of would I ever buy a house where someone was murdered? No. <laughs> you know, like, obviously, death is a part of living and it's going to happen to all of us, right? But there's just something about it being connected to a true crime case that would make me stay away from that house, especially one that is an infamous or well-known crime case. It makes me think back to the Watcher House and how disturbing that was and the struggle that the initial owners in that case had with selling it, especially once the story was made public and now there's a Netflix series on it. So I would never buy a house that someone was murdered in, but also depending on the situation and how long it's been, 
I don't fault anyone if they fall in love with the house, how they could dismiss its dark past to continue to live there. What about you? I also would not buy a house that someone was murdered in. It's one thing if someone dies in the house from like, you know, natural causes, an accident or something, but a violent murder, that's a whole other monster. And like you said, I'm not going to judge anybody that does buy it. We're all in like different financial and like financial systems and beliefs, spiritual, religious beliefs, whatnot. I agree about the mannequin going too far. I don't mind the signs as much. To me, it's kind of like, is there really a need? Like maybe one or two signs. But yeah, I think the mannequin is in bad taste. I would say to everyone to watch this video that's an interview with Tom and Barbara. We're going to have it linked in our sources. If you watch the video, I think it is kind of hard to like be mad at them. They seem like very good intentioned people. And I know, you know, even if people with the best intentions can make mistakes, but it seems like they have succeeded in demystifying the house to the community and helping the community to move on. I think I have a little bit of mixed feelings when it comes to how, what they did with the house. Uh, We've talked so many times about using humor to heal and so many communities like Salem, where the Texarkana murders took place, they've seemed to really move past it. You know, so why shouldn't this house? Why shouldn't the owners be able to move past it? I needed to include the murder house flip in this just because again, it's bizarre to me. I have never seen an episode, so I can't judge it until I have. I've seen the trailer and it doesn't seem lighthearted. It doesn't seem just like a, hey, we're going to renovate this house, like a HGTV kind of show. They are sitting down with the families that live there now and are talking about how it's difficult to li- for them to live in these houses. I guess like the thoughts from like neighbors and outsiders. So I support people feeling safe in their spaces, people feeling like their space is their own and reclaiming it. I guess I can't fully judge the show like I've said until I've seen it to know if it does seem exploitative. I mean, I feel like the name alone is like a tad exploitative, but... I do think it is kind of riding that true crime bandwagon, the true crime craze that's going on. But again, it kind of, it looks good intentioned with the actual people on the show. I don't know if the producers had the best intentions going into it. I'll say that. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the crimes of Dorothea Puente. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. As always, stay safe.